If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. If you'd like to follow along in the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, I encourage you um, to do so. Some of you in the brand new pews, we're still going to stock those, but uh, we have Bibles in most of them here. If you don't have a Bible at home, uh, or if the translation you're reading is kind of difficult, uh, please feel free um, to take one of the Bibles in the pew rack in front of you, or take one for a loved one or friend who does not have one. I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's words. Beginning verse 31 of Mark chapter 8. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing. Would you please be seated? During this second week of Advent, we come to a passage where at first glance, it doesn't seem to have a lot to do with peace. But my prayer is that as we study this today, we will understand that Jesus' rebuke of Peter and his challenge to the followers of Christ about what it means to be a disciple have a great deal to do with that theme of peace. What do you think of when you think of peace and Christmas? Peace at Christmas. I wrote on a big yellow sticky note at the top of my Notes sprawled out as I was studying for this message in big letters, peace. Immediately, Luke chapter 2 and verse 14 came to my mind. When the angels appeared to the shepherds who were keeping watch over their flock at night, they announced glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. We've sung about this very passage today in our time of worship. See, the arrival of Jesus, even at his birth, there was a promise made of peace among those with whom God is pleased. Of course, we easily remember this passage. It's the familiar Christmas passage. 
but I wonder how often we consider the greater context of the peace about which the angels were proclaiming. We don't have to travel very far in Luke chapter 2 to see that this promised peace will not mean the absence of conflict. Simeon, the old man, awaiting the Messiah's birth, blessed Mary and Joseph and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is to be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The words of our Lord Jesus himself confirm that the absence of conflict was not Jesus' purpose for coming to earth. He said in Luke chapter 12, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He was speaking, of course, of his death. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Sounds like Thanksgiving. <laughs> not, not in our family. That was just a general joke. <laughs> Truly, it's not in our family. But, um, so we consider the greater context, right, of peace, this greater context of Jesus' first advent, we realize there are some complexities to the phrase, peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. Now, all of this relates to our passage today because the expectations of the Jews of the coming Messiah were largely that he would lead a military effort to cast off the oppression of the Roman Empire and establish peace once again from David's throne in an earthly kingdom. Listen to what one commentator writes. He says, quote, Israel had suffered under a series of devastating conquests and had been subjugated by one empire after another. The brief period of Jewish independence under the Hasmoneans in 164 through 63 BC, it only whetted the appetite of the people for a sovereign state under the Messiah where Israel could worship God freely without the hindrance of pagan nations. From a human perspective, catch that. From a human perspective, such freedom could never be achieved except through a military victory. Jesus would say to his disciples in Mark chapter 10, you know that those recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise here it dominion over them. The way of the world, you see, is conquest, subjugation, power. Yet the way of Jesus is radically different. He continues in verse 43 and 44 of Mark 10. But it is not so among you. Rather, whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first will be slave of all. Jesus teaches service instead of subjugation, sacrifice instead of conquest. This is how true salvation will be achieved and how the kingdom of God will be inaugurated. Though Peter 
had correctly discerned that Jesus was the Messiah, he had yet to learn the role of the suffering servant and the cross. You could say his, ver- his vision was a little blurry, like seeing men as though they were trees. If you remember last week's message, I refer to you to Brother Alex's message online. So let's look a little bit more closely at what gets this rise out of Peter. In verse 31, the scripture says, Then Jesus began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. That phrase at the beginning of verse 31, he began to teach them, it marks the beginning of a new turning point in this gospel where Jesus will openly set his sights on Jerusalem. And between here and the end of chapter 10, three times he will predict his death. This was not a guess. Jesus was not just good at understanding the political situation, understanding that there could become some pressure and he might die. No, he says it was necessary and that he must die. This is not an afterthought. This is the divine plan. It is the mission on which Christ had been sent to die for sinners. R.C. Sproul says, He spoke in these terms because from the foundation of the world, the Father had determined that the Son would suffer, be rejected, and ultimately be killed to redeem his people from God's righteous wrath against their sin. The punishment for sin before Almighty God was death. We all deserve death as sinners. And if Jesus was to save his people, it would be necessary for him to make full payment for their sin. Matthew 1, 21, another Christmas passage, angel speaking to Joseph says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Do you hear the must there? The necessity, the will, the divine plan? Jesus even in the manger, is good news because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus lays it out point by point for the disciples. He doesn't mince words. This is not another parable. Look at verse 32. It says, Jesus spoke openly about these things. The ESV says he spoke to them plainly. There was no misunderstanding, and that's exactly why Peter got so upset. He heard it loud and clear. But Peter was thinking of a different messianic mission. He knew Jesus was the Messiah, but he misunderstood the nature of the kingdom that Jesus was ushering in. So scripture says, Peter rebuked Jesus. Can you imagine that? Peter rebuked Jesus. This is not a gentle, now Jesus, are you sure? I'm not sure you really understand. He rebuked him. The same word is used for Peter's rebuke of Jesus as Jesus rebuking the wind and the waves, which if you'll recall when I preached that, you remember me saying he probably got a little loud. Be quiet. Stop. He rebuked them. And Peter rebuked Jesus. Well, then we get to verse 33. Turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter. And he said, 
Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Peter is playing checkers, and Jesus is playing chess. He doesn't understand. Peter's mindset is completely enveloped in human thinking. Not only is his mindset human-oriented, it fell right in line with the way Satan attempted to deter Jesus from his mission. You may recall Satan tempted Jesus to betray his divine mission for earthly dominion. He offered him so-called the the kingdoms of this world in the wilderness temptation. In Matthew 4, we read, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you, earthly kingdoms, worldly kingdoms, if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. Sounds familiar. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Luke's gospel notes that after Jesus rejected Satan's temptations in the wilderness, Satan departed from him until an opportune time. It was a foreshadowing hint that his temptation of Christ was not finished. But who would have ever thought Satan would use one of Jesus' closest followers to deliver this tantalizing temptation. Hopefully by now, you see why the retort against Peter is not harsh. It's the reality that Satan's temptation from the wilderness was coming back again. There can be no doubt Peter was ready to fight. He he was ready to raise a sword. Peace on earth, because we're going to take over. And I'll fight to the death for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, nope, get behind me. You don't understand. You're you're thinking about human ways, not God's ways. He doesn't see the mission from God's perspective. He has the wrong mindset about Messiah. The ESV puts verse 33 of Mark like this. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter, says, get behind me, Satan. And here's the key. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I just pulled that ESV just to to hear another way. Human concerns, God concerns. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of man. And so I asked the question this morning. Outline's rather simple. Here's the penetrating question. On what is your mind set. On what is your mind set? The word peace was still up there at the top of my notes, and so I I did a Logos Bible search in the New Testament. Peace, anywhere in the New Testament. Started reading through a number of passages of Scripture, and it hit me as I came across Romans 8 and verse 6. I made a correlation that I want to draw upon from verse 33 of Mark 8 to Romans 8, 6. Hear what Romans 8, 6 says. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit, the things of God, 
is life, and here it is, peace. You want to die? Think about human things all the time. You want to live and have peace? Set your mind on the Spirit, on heavenly things, on kingdom things, on, on Christ and His ways. Life, peace. This is no small connection. This verse, Romans 8, 6, I believe is another summary of verse 33 to the end of this chapter. As Jesus will go on to explain the paradox of the path of Christian discipleship. Die to self. Live to God. Die to the flesh and human concerns. Live to God. Live to the spirit and heavenly ways. And you will have peace. Just think about it. What does the flesh desire as it considers peace from a human perspective? Brother Mark prayed in this way earlier today. The human mind thinks of power, subjugation, domination. That was the the Roman peace. The Pax Romana was just have enough might to stop them. And then there will be an absence of conflict, full bellies, a thriving economy, Peace means self-indulgence with no fear of interruption by foes. But Romans chapter 3 tells us of unbelievers, the way of peace they have not known. Oh, you may think you know peace, but you have not known peace in unbelief. In the mindset of the flesh, peace is an unknown path. But when the mind is set on the spirit, we are told we will have life and peace. You see, the Spirit calls us to deny ourselves. The Spirit convicts us to die to sin, mortify the desires of the flesh, lose our lives for the sake of the gospel, and have concern for our soul and the souls of others. In other words, the mind that is set on the Spirit asks the greater question than merely, do I have peace with others? Not that that is unimportant, Or even, is my country at peace with other nations? Not that that is unimportant. The mindset on the spirit wants to know, am I at peace with God? Have I found favor with God? This is the kind of spiritual eyesight that allows us to see that we could be prosperous, live at complete peace in the world, enjoy full bellies, merry hearts, and spend an eternity facing the just wrath of God in hell as punishment for our sin. What benefit is it, Jesus asks us, if we gain the whole world and lose our soul? Jesus' mission is not less than world peace. Hear that. Jesus' mission is not less than world peace in the way humans typically think about it. Oh, that will come in its proper time. It's just so much greater than that. He came to bring reconciliation to God. The kind of peace, this is important, the kind of peace without which an everlasting kingdom of peace with others is impossible. Do you get it? You cannot have an everlasting kingdom of peace 
with others without peace with God. You see, because to, to disobey God, to sin against God, inevitably results in harming others. We could never have peace with one another without peace with God first and fundamentally. So, Jesus' mission, his first and foremost mission of the kingdom is to bring sinful humanity into peace with God. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in, the, in Christ for the death that he died for our sins, his burial and his resurrection, that Jesus had just predicted to his followers, they are the way of peace. Faith in his death for sins is the way of peace. Jesus died on the cross and his blood shed was for peace. That's what Colossians 1.20 says. He made peace by the blood of his cross. Paul calls the gospel, the gospel of peace. You see, brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God is not merely concerned with earthly matters like your health or your wealth. It's not a matter of the square footage of your house or the kind of car you drive or the vacation you took or the amazing food you eat. No, Paul says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness and peace and joy. Hear it in the Holy Spirit. Set your mind on the things of the flesh and die. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit and live. Righteousness, peace, joy. Are you righteous before God? Not without Christ dwelling in you by his Spirit. Are you at peace with God? Not without faith in Christ justifying you before him. Do you even have joy in difficult circumstances? Not without spiritual eyes to see that the suffering of this life is light and momentary compared with the weight of glory that will be revealed to us, Romans 8, 18. Friends, what Jesus says to Peter is a question we must all ask ourselves if we want to experience peace this Christmas. If you want to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus, then we must ask ourselves the question, on what is my mind set? The flesh or the spirit? Is it set on the human stuff, like presents, the food all serve, what kind of drinks to buy for guests, and how well the house is decorated? Or is my mind set on the Spirit of God kind of stuff? Righteousness, joy, and peace by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the question, will I be willing to die to self and the flesh to lay down my life. Understanding it by the power of the Holy Spirit, I will truly save my life and find everlasting peace.